Good morning. Good morning. morning. This morning, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. That's where we're going to start, okay? Mm -hmm. Hebrews 9, 16. Before we get started, though, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for our family. I thank you for the ways that you lead and guide. I ask you would lead us through this study that you would speak to each one of our hearts. You know exactly where we're at, what we're going through, what our thoughts are. I just ask you would meet us right where we are. Speak to us, lead us, and guide us that your words would be spoken here this morning, not mine. That you would just watch over us this week and in this life. That you would help us to be a light and a witness to you. That you would open up the doors you want us to walk through and close the ones you don't. And that you would lead us through our time of prayer with you, that you would lead us through our time of reading your word, that you would lead us in all the ways that you lead us in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mom. So, we're going to get started in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. Are you there? Mm-hmm. Did you find it? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when you're there, raise your hand. So, last time we left off in Hebrews 15, we went over that, we went over salvation, and now we'll pick it up here in verse 16. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. Now, when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made the will is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. You make a will, but the will is ineffective or doesn't go into effect until that person has died. And that when that person dies, the will goes into effect to explain what that person's last wishes were. We probably can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Huh? Mm -hmm. So continuing on here in verse 18. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. So what God's saying here is that this covenant, it's kind of like a will. But the will doesn't get put into effect or the covenant doesn't get put into effect without the shedding of blood. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both on the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, this is the blood. Then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that's a big one. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without death, the will doesn't get put into effect. And in the same way, God relates that to his covenant. Without the shedding of blood, his covenant doesn't get put into effect. 
And what does the shedding of blood represent? Well, it's death. So we're going to take a look at that just a little bit more. We're going to go to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. So Leviticus 17, 11. So Leviticus is right after Exodus. Chapter 17 comes right after chapter 16. I thought that was funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you say again? Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. So sin equals death, right? The penalty of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, is what we just read. But So that brings up the question, well, why is that? Doesn't it? Or at least it brings it up in my mind. Why is that? Why is there so much death and blood? And I would say one reason is that sin results in death, and God takes sin very seriously. All sin. But he didn't just leave us there to fend for ourselves. He sent his one and only son to take our place, to die in our place. So, he, or Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for life that makes purification possible. So life is in the blood, right? So if the result of sin is death, then the only the only acceptable payment or penalty is the shedding of blood. Life is in the blood. Sin results in death. So the only way that you can be made right with God is by the shedding of blood, right? Either by your own death or by the, in the Old Testament, when Leviticus was written, by the death of animals. But that only covered up your sin, right? But when Jesus died, he removed our sins. And we'll get into that too. So that's why. God takes sin very seriously. He doesn't give a pass. It's not that big a deal. No, it's all very serious. So all sin results in death. And life is in the blood. So there's the shedding of blood for the payment of sin, for paying that penalty. And in the Old Testament, that was through the blood of bulls and goats. But with Jesus, that was through his blood. So let's go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. So Matthew 26, 26. The New Living Translation. So Matthew 26, verse 26. So this is at the the Last Supper, right? The last meal that Jesus would share with his disciples before he was betrayed. And I think it's interesting some of the words that Jesus uses here. 
So as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. He broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, his blood confirms the new covenant, right? So the old covenant, when they set up the tabernacle, was confirmed when they shed the blood of bulls and goats, right? And that was what put that tabernacle or that old covenant into effect. And God related the covenant to a will to help us understand it better. The will doesn't go into effect until that person dies. Well, the new covenant, the new covenant of grace, which points us to Jesus, didn't go into effect until Jesus died on the cross, right? But when he died on the cross, that opened up the new covenant. So, Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11:23. So 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 23. So that idea of Passover kind of sets up why do we do communion, right? The, the bread that represented Jesus' body in the juice or the wine that represented Jesus' blood. And here we'll read more about that here in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Right? So the new covenant was put into effect, but only with the shedding of the blood of Jesus. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. So why do we do communion? Why do we celebrate communion? To remember Jesus, right? For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So what are we doing when we celebrate communion? We're reminding ourselves that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That his blood, the shedding of his blood, opened up the new covenant, the covenant of grace and mercy, where our sins are not just covered up, but our sins are removed from our record. And that's important, and we're going to get to that here. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. So Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll continue on our study in verse 23. Does this make sense so far? So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 is where we left off. 
That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of the things in heaven. Now remember the tabernacle is what God had Moses build. And it was this kind of traveling tent that they took as they were roaming around in the wilderness. And they'd set it up. And the tabernacle was like what is in heaven, like a, a representation of what was in heaven. God gave Moses very specific instructions on how to build it, right? So that is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real thing in heaven had to be purified with a far better sacrifice than the blood of animals. And what was that? The blood of Jesus, right? Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, a far better sacrifice. Because <coughs> Jesus worked out a far better covenant for us, a far better relationship with God for us. That our sins weren't just covered up, but they were removed from our record, never brought up again, right? When God opens up the books, we've asked for forgiveness for those sins, they're not in there, they're not recorded. And that not only that, but we get the the covenant of grace, where it's God's undeserved, unmerited favor towards us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't work for it. He just gives it out because he loves. Does that make sense? So, so that is a far, far better covenant. We've already kind of gone over that in previous studies here in Hebrews. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made, by, made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. So why did he enter into heaven? What, the shedding of blood started this new covenant. And he's appearing before God on our behalf. Right? He's pleading for us. He knows what it's like to live this human life, to struggle with the, the temptations, but yet he would never send. But he understands what we're like. He understands what it's like to be human. He understands what it's like to live each one of our lives, to have our friends and families abandon us, to have people talk bad about us, to have, be falsely accused, right? People make up lies about us, all of that. So... So he understands all of that. He understands the human condition because he has lived it himself. Every bit of it. There's nothing that we go through that he hasn't already gone through himself. So when you think that you're all alone, no one understands what you're going through, you're wrong. Jesus understands exactly what you're going through because he's been through it himself. So, Verse 25, and he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal, right? Remember that? The, holy, the high priest would enter into the most holy place every single year to make atonement for the sins of the people. Not for all of their sins, but for the sins that they would commit in ignorance, right? But he had to make atonement for his own sins first so he could go into the presence of God. And it wasn't a salvation issue. It was a fulfilling life issue. See, we can be saved but not have a very fulfilling life. But 
we can be saved and live a life that's pleasing to God, obedient to God, following him, and he gives us a very fulfilling life. And that's the difference. So, verse 26. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. So if it had been necessary, the, the Jesus' sacrifice wouldn't have been an acceptable once-for-all-time sacrifice, then he would have had to die again and again, just like the high priest had to sacrifice again and again to enter into the presence of God. And he would have had to do it ever since the world began, because it wasn't very long after the world began that sin entered into the world, right? And so Jesus would have had to die again and again from the beginning. But he didn't, because his sacrifice was far better than any other sacrifice out there. His was the ultimate sacrifice. God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die in our place. And that that sacrifice was so much better that he could die once for all the sins in the past, all the sins in the present, and all the sins that would ever be committed. He could die once for them all. And he, could, he was the only sacrifice worthy to take on all of those sins. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. So he's removed sin from our record. He's appeared at the end of that age. Now there's a new covenant. You hear a lot of talk now about the end of the age that we're in, right? With all the things that are going on, and that may be true. We may be at the end of the age. But I think with all the things that are going on, God is making every attempt to point people to him. Look at what's going on. That this age will come to an end. And that God's will will be done. And that we should turn to Jesus while we still can, right? While it's still an option to us. And if we already have turned to Jesus, then we should live a life that reflects him, right? We should live a life that honors him. And we'll get into why that is here in a minute. So let's go to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans 5, 6. So Romans chapter 5, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though some might be willing, though some, someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, right? And since we have been made right with God, been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. So Jesus died for us not when we were good, right? We didn't get our lives all together. He died for us while we were still sinners, right? When we were enemies with God. God makes it very clear. We're either for God or we're against Him. We're either living a life that's obedient to Him or we're living a sinful life. There's no gray area. There's no neutral ground. I'm walking with God or I'm walking away from him. I'm not straying off to the side. We've been over this. Let's go and look at, at verse 18 now. So jump down to Romans five eighteen. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. So who has access to this new life, this life-saving gift that Jesus gave us through his sacrifice? Everyone. Not just a select group of chosen few, but everyone has access to that. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So, through Adam's actions, sin entered into the world. And through Jesus' actions, salvation also entered into the world. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. We'll finish up the chapter. So Hebrews 9, verse 27. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly waiting for him. To all who are eagerly waiting for him, he will bring salvation. So just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's what we're going to finish the study on, is focusing on what that word judgment comes. So each of us is destined to die. Everyone on this earth will die, right? You won't live forever. Not one of us. So every single person will die once, but after that comes judgment. So let's look at what the after that comes judgment part means. And for that, we're going to start off in Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. So I don't know if you've heard in the, the term in the Bible, the great white throne judgment. Have you heard that? That's what we're going to read about here. Because it says everyone's destined to die once, then after that comes judgment. But there's different types of judgment that will take place. And then we're going to look at this first one here. So Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth 
and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I would say to you that what that's speaking of is that there's nowhere you can hide from God. That God is everywhere, right? You can't get away from this. There's no escaping this judgment that's about to take place. While people may think that they're not going to be held accountable for their actions or what they do with Jesus, everyone will. There's no place either in the sky, you could go live on Mars or on the moon, you're not going to hide from God, right? No place in the sky or on the earth that you can flee from God. So, then verse 12. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this great white throne judgment is separating those who believe versus those who don't believe. And those who didn't believe would face the second death. And that second death was that they were thrown into the great lake of fire. Or thrown into the lake of fire. Right? Because their name was not found in the book of life. So that's that great white throne judgment. Separating the believers from the unbelievers. But the Bible speaks a lot about judgment, and I would say to you the reason it speaks a lot about judgment is because God wants to make it very clear to everyone that everyone will be judged. You'll be judged for the works that you did here on this earth, for what you did with his son. How did you believe in him? How did your life change after you believed in him? Did you believe in him at all, right? So, and if you didn't believe in him at all, this judgment ends here, right? You've been separated. You didn't believe in him at all. Your book was not written in the book of life. And you were thrown into the lake of fire. And that was the second death. So everyone is destined to die once, like Hebrews said in verse 27. But the second death is for those who didn't believe in Jesus. So now let's go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 25. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So John, chapter 5, verse 25. Let's see what Jesus had to say about this. So John chapter 5, verse 25, and these are Jesus' words speaking here. And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has, gr- he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone, because he is the Son of Man. So the authority for Jesus to judge everyone comes from who? From the Father. Life is in the Father. The Father has given life to the Son. He has also given the Son authority to judge. But why did Jesus come the first time? We've been over this in other studies. He came not to judge, but to save. So Jesus' appearance here on earth in the Gospel of John, where we're reading Jesus' words that he spoke, when he came this time, it wasn't to judge, it was to save. The judgment would come later, right? 
So continue it on here in John chapter 5, verse 28. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. So here we see a separation. Those who have done good, those who believe in Jesus will rise to experience eternal life. But those who have not, who have chose to live an evil life apart from God, will experience judgment. And we read what that judgment was in Revelation, right? I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. So where does the judgment come from? It's the will of God, right? And God's will is always perfect. And that Jesus is doing what God's will is, right? So in the Godhead, you see a very organized setup. Not one is greater than the other. Not one argues with the other about the job or roles that they do. But they all are God. And how that exactly works, I don't know if you'll really truly understand it on this side of eternity. But I do think you will understand it when we get to heaven. Then he'll make it clear to us. But right now, our understanding is we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And those three make up the one true God that we worship. So, let's go to Romans chapter 14, verse 10. We'll continue looking at this story, this, um, what the Bible says about judgment. So, Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will confess and give praise to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. So here it's been talking about believers, but in that, about us judging other believers and we're not to do that, right? That's God that does that. It's not our authority to judge others and even other believers. God will judge But what we are called to do is not cause another believer to stumble. We're to lead people to Jesus. And after we've led them to Jesus, we're to strengthen and encourage them, right? Not to belittle them or berate them or explain to them why they're not good enough. Because we have no room to judge ourselves, do we? We've done plenty of wrong in our lives. So, but it makes it very clear again that every knee will bend to me. There's not one person that's going to escape this judgment. Everyone will stand before Jesus, and everyone will bow their knee before him. So we can confess now that he is God and believe in him, or you can wait and be be argumentative. And when you get to heaven, you will bow your knee then and confess that he is God. But it's far better to do it now because you get eternal life and a whole bunch of rewards when you do what he asks you to do. Just saying. 
So let's go to uh, let's go to Second Corinthians chapter five as we start to wrap this up. So Second Corinthians chapter five, starting in verse six. So we read in John that Jesus said that the dead in Christ, the dead it will rise and that he'll judge, right? So before Jesus sacrificed on the cross, people didn't go to heaven, right? The dead who died went to Abraham's bosom, and we've done a study on this. It's the center of the earth, and, and that's where they were. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't go right into heaven either. He went down to set his captives free, set those that were in Abraham's bosom. And we know about Abraham's bosom from the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the parable that was told in the Gospels, and that, and that makes it clear what that was, that there's a place of the righteous dead and the place of the unrighteous dead, and it's separated by this great chasm, and they can't cross over, right? But Jesus went to set those, those in the place of the righteous dead free, to open that up and to receive them into heaven. But now that Jesus has died, we pick up what happens to us here in Second Corinthians chapter 5, when we die, as believers. So this is Paul speaking to the church of Corinth, and he's speaking to believers. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing, not by seeing. So we live by believing, not by seeing. That's what faith is. Faith is believing in what we cannot see, right? Yes, we are fully confident that we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whenever we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please Him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in these earthly bodies. So, when we are apart from these earthly bodies, we are present with the Lord. What happens to us when we die? Do we go to Abraham's bosom? Do we go to some place called purgatory? No, there's no such place as purgatory. There was a place that called Abraham's bosom, but that is empty now. So when we die, after believing in Jesus, after Jesus' death on the cross, we go straight to heaven. But we must all stand before Christ and be judged, right? And that judgment is, did you believe in him? What did you do with God's son? So, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. We just covered this a few weeks ago, but we'll read it again here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus was a perfect sacrifice for our sins, but how much more does Jesus' blood purify our consciences? Remember we studied this that even though the, the blood of the animals couldn't really purify their consciences, 
the blood of Jesus can, right? That we can really believe that he removes our sins from our record. And why is that important? So that we can worship the living God, right? So that we can stand before him confident that our record has been wiped clean. That our record is clear. So, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, as we finish up this study. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now other builders are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we have laid, than we already have. And that foundation is Jesus Christ, right? That's the foundation of everything. You must first believe in Jesus before anything else can be added to you. Any rewards in heaven, because there is no eternal life without Jesus. Make sense? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Anyone who builds on that foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ, That's the foundation of what we believe in. Without him, there's no salvation. There's no rewards. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on judgment day, fire will, will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer a great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through the walls of flames. So, what does that tell us? That tells us that we have this judgment, right? The the great white throne judgment. That's the first one. Where he separates the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. But then as believers, you've built on, you've started the foundation, the building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, right? We believe in him. And then when we do works that were in line with his will, with God's will, that follow him, those, I would say to you, are the, the materials made of gold, silver, and jewels that will pass through the fire. But the ones, the works that we do made of wood, hay, or straw will get burnt up, right? So we can do things that we think are are good. I'm good with God. I can still live my life the way I want and maybe a, a good thing here or there or whatever it is, maybe not being led by God to do it. And I'd say to you that those are the, wood, the works done made of wood, hay, or straw and that those get burnt up. And we can live our life doing that. But when we pass through that fire, so we've made it past the great white, great white throne judgment, and we come to this judgment of giving out rewards for believers, we pass through the fire, and if we've done all this, lived our life the way we wanted to after receiving Jesus, and not the way God led us to, then we'll pass through the fire, but we're going to have nothing to show for it. And that's not what we want, is it? This is, you're storing up your rewards for all of eternity. We don't want nothing to show for it. We want to have something to show for what we did, right? The short time that we had here on earth, God, I used my life. Maybe not all of it, but I used my life from when I believed in you, my new life, to serve you, right? Even when I didn't understand, even when it didn't make sense, 
And those things that you do in faith are what you're rewarded for. And those are the rewards you have for all of eternity. But you can live a life and have nothing to show for it. And that's what verse 15 says. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer a great loss, right? You have all of eternity with no rewards. That's a great loss. But the builder will be saved. So this isn't a salvation issue. You're saved by believing in Jesus. That's the foundation. But like someone barely escaping through the walls of flames. You've escaped through the walls of flames and you have nothing to show for it. That's not the kind of life we want to live, right? So there's the salvation issue. I believe in Jesus. But then what do you do with your life after that? Does Jesus really lead and guide your life every step of it all the way through? Or are you still leading and guiding your life? Are you building with wood, wood, straw, and hay? Or are you building with gold, silver, and jewels? So that's what we're speaking of on judgment. But while we're talking about all this, one important thing, I think that hopefully you understand there's a big distinction between believing and being a believer and then following Jesus after that and being a disciple. And those are two different things. Every disciple is a believer in Jesus, but not every believer in Jesus is a disciple. And that's another study that we can go through sometime. But God makes that very clear. But there are a few places that make it very clear that God removes our sins from our record. We're going to start off in the Old Testament. These are just a few verses here as we wrap up. We'll start off at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. So Isaiah 43, 25. And these are all just kind of one verse each. But we'll see the language in the Old Testament when we're still under the blood and the blood of bulls and goats. And then we'll see the language in the New Testament and how that changes. So, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake. I will never think of them again. That's God talking to his people. He'll blot out their sins, never think of them again. The next place we'll go to is Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 34. So Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 34. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will already will know me already, says the Lord. This is speaking of the nation of Israel at the end times. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never remember their sins. Right? So he removes it from his memory. And that's in the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant. Now let's go to Romans chapter 11. So Romans chapter 11, verse 27. So Romans chapter 11, verse 27. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Right? He takes them away. Removes them from our record. Not blots them out. Not that he just doesn't remember them. He removes it from the book. Right? So when he opens up the books at judgment that we read about in Revelation, 
your sins are not written down there. They've been removed. You've been set free from that. So you believe in Jesus. You made it past the great white throne judgment, right? And you've moved on to the judgment of handing out the rewards. What did you build your life with? The things that can pass through the fire or the things that will be burnt up. But your sins will not be there. So we're not talking about sinful things because we've asked forgiveness for our sins. It's removed from our record. It's what do we do with our life, right? What good do we do with our life? And not just the good that we want to do. You know, there's good things that I could do that I want to do, but that might not be what God has led me to do. And there's a difference. When I do the things, when I step out of faith with what God's led me to do, that's what I get rewarded for. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. While we're talking about this removal of sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. And we're going to see this more when we get into Hebrews chapter 11. That God truly does remove it from your record. You read about people in the Old Testament, and then you read about them in the New Testament, and all the bad things are not in the New Testament. Because Jesus died and removed their sins from their record. So, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says... This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Uh, Then he says, I will never again remember their sins or lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So God's way of forgiving after Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross is it's removed, never be remembered again, and there's no sacrifice needed for it, right? So we don't need a sacrifice for ourselves. We just need to ask God for forgiveness, believe that he has forgiven us. He gives us that clear conscience, and we need to live the life that he's called us to live. So the last place we'll go to is 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. I am writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Holy Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrieking back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. So if you want confidence in your salvation, do you obey God? Right? When we obey God, we truly love him. We deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. And that when Jesus comes back again, because he is coming back again, we can be full of courage that we were living a life that he called us to live and not shriek back, not in fear, but in shame, because we were not living the life he called us to live. We're still saved, but we made it through that fire that barely, um, with no rewards, with nothing to show for it, still smelling of smoke. Right, And that's not the life we want to live. So we've been saved. We believe in Jesus. 
Our salvation is secured. He removes our sins from our record. We should have confidence in that. And the reason we should have confidence in that is so that we can truly worship Him, right? The enemy wants to bring you down, that you will never be forgiven for that or this or whatever it is. But the enemy wants to do that to continue to try and separate you from God, which is not true. It's a lie. Don't believe the lie of the enemies. You are forgiven for every sin you've ever committed. That God loves you that much. He sent his one and only son to die for you on the cross. And now that we believe in that, what do we do with our lives? Do we live a life that is the life we want to live, doing whatever it is we want, a good thing here and there? Or do we live the life that God's called us to live? And when we live the life God's called us to live, we have rewards to show for it. When we live the life that we wanted to live, we're just going to make it up there for all of eternity and have nothing to show for it. And that's a big loss. That makes sense? So, any questions on this study? No, I explained it flawlessly. <laughs> Do you have a question? No, did you write some good notes down? Oh, I was going to ask. All right. Well, I do have, I think that <clears throat> I'm trying to understand your, the Bible saying you, I'm just bringing back to the book we just read, The Radical Prayer. I'm assuming, I haven't read his book, Radical Redemption. I'm assuming he had prison time and he's, but my, my point is, is so even though People have made mistakes in the past. I understand he's living with his belief now. And he believed, I'm assuming, at one time. And so did a lot of people. Like some people that end up back in prison, they believe. You're saying they have no treasure. That's what it's saying? No. Mm. No, look at David. So look at David's life, right? Mm -hmm. David started off his life very good. And he was known as a man after God's own heart, right? Mm -hmm. He defeats Goliath. He has faith in God. God does all these great things. Makes him king over his nation. But then David goes on to live in sin for a period of his life, right? As the affair with Bathsheba, he murders Uriah. Does that mean that all the good that David did before gets erased? And no reward for it? The things that he did in faith. When he went out and fought Goliath, did he do it on his own strength? No, he was just a weak little kid. He did it in the faith that God could defeat Goliath, not himself. So does, does David's bad deeds that he did with the affair and the murder of Uriah discredit or wipe away the rewards he would receive for the things he did in faith, like defeating Goliath? And the answer to that is no. Because the things that David did that was bad aren't recorded anymore. It's gone. So when we read about David's life in heaven, when God recounts him, and we'll get to this in in Hebrews chapter 11, you only read about the good things, the things that he did in faith, the things that he's rewarded for. So yes, those rewards stand no matter what. Those are the things you built with gold, silver, jewels that can never be removed. Just like your salvation can never be removed. The things we did in faith can never be removed. But it's a matter of, could David have done more in faith during that period of his life instead of living in sin? And the answer to that is yes. So he could have had more rewards, but he chose to live that period of his life in sin, and you don't get those years back. Does that make sense? David can't go back and relive that period of his life. 
And I'd say to you after that, David's rewards probably weren't that, the things he did in faith were probably not as much as what he did before. So you're so, saying we don't really know until we get there. Oh, no, you don't know until you get there. Well, I, I think you do know. I think David knows that what he did with Goliath, that was him trusting in God and that God defeated Goliath. Things like that, I think you know, right? Well, what I guess I'm getting at is there's people that have lived a horrible, horrible life and done horrible things, and then, let's say a year before they die, they accept Christ and do some amazing things. Then the, all the years that they lived a horrible life are removed. It's not in the books. The only thing that's going to be in the book is I accepted Jesus, I have eternal life, and the one year that I lived in faith, stepping out of faith with God, are the things that he, that person gets rewarded for. Like the that one movie, I can only imagine when like doesn't the dad like accept Christ like right before he dies mm-hmm. and yeah. then he goes to heaven? Yeah. <laughs> And that makes a very good point. Don't wait till the end of your life. I'm not I mean, no, I know, that. I'm just but that's saying. the kind of the point of what the text is saying. Don't wait till the end of your life. You're gonna have nothing to show for it, right? So it's one thing to be a believer, but don't stop there. Is really what the text is saying. What the, what God is really encouraging us to do is don't just stop by believe, being a believer. Don't end your relationship with God there, or end pursuing a relationship with God, or end stepping out in faith because it took faith to believe. That Jesus died for you, right? That took faith to be saved. But don't stop there. Continue believing and stepping out of faith in God. That's what it's saying. But any bad that you did, anything that you've asked forgiveness for, any sinful things are removed from your record. Not going to be brought up. And we'll get to that when we get... We'll get more into that when we get into Hebrews chapter 11. Does that make sense? make sense to you? That's a great question. I like the way you think. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together just to learn about you, to study through who you are. You loved us so much that you were willing to send your one and only son into this world to die in our place. I ask that you would just speak to our hearts, that you would Just give us a new infilling of your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in what is right and what is true. That you would watch over us, that you would protect us. That you would lead us, guide us in ways that only you can. I ask you to grant us wisdom and patience, knowledge and understanding, the things that can only come from you. Help us to be a light and a witness to you this week in our lives, in who we interact with, and how we treat each other. It's in Jesus' mighty, mighty name I pray these things. Amen.